Amen. As you grab a seat, you can turn or tap your way to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Uh, and we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 as we finish out our series on judgment. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy on your way out. Uh, in a modern English translation, it makes it a little easier to get through it and, and see what God's telling you through scripture. Uh, and today, the subject matter, the, the thing I'm talking about is going to underline the fact that we want you to be reading along. We want you to be willing to check what we're saying against what you're reading to make sure that what you're hearing is what the scriptures are saying. We don't want to take for granted that hope is always going to be teaching just Bible. That is our stated conviction, something we have to defend, though. Because as we finish up talking about judgment, we've been talking about the way that we are judged by our culture, the way we judge others within the culture, the way that the culture kind of can take us apart. Then we started to talk about capital J, judgment, judgment from God. Judgment that's going to land you either in heaven or hell. Categories that the scripture presents very clearly. Now, what are we going to do with them? The Bible has all kinds of different things in it that when you read it, you put into a different category in your head because you think, ah, that's not part of my daily experience. I'm not exactly sure what to do with the concept of an angel with the concept of an angel that has limbs that burn like burnishing bronze. And Daniel is a book in the Old Testament, and one of the angels comes and speaks to Daniel, and it's so intense, he just falls asleep. <laughs> it's like a toddler. <laughs> you take a toddler on a, like, a nice day, and all of a sudden you look back and they're just asleep, because it's just too much. An angel is just too much. What do you do with that? What do you do with what the Scripture says about our enemies. You know, we talked about heaven and hell, and we talked about sort of the states of mind that are leading toward heaven and hell. And there's an aspect of, of that conversation where you could sort of take it and flip it and say, like, they're trying to take things that are sort of spiritual and supernatural, and they're reducing them to things that are material and psychological. And that's not the case at all. We at Hope actually believe in God. So we at Hope actually believe in the devil. And so while we've talked about heaven and hell and about how hell tempts you and about how heaven is reaching for you, we need to be clear about the ways in which we get from one to the other, the ways in which we avoid the one and choose the other. And part of how we're going to do that from Scripture, from Ephesians 2, is we're going to see arrayed on either side of us these two armies. We're going to see our enemies, and we're going to see our allies. We're going to see the enemies that are arrayed against us on the one side, and we're going to see our allies on the other. And imaginatively, we're going to try to understand through eyes of faith something about the pictures that Scripture gives us, which very clearly open up to us something true here. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Mark it, highlight it, 
Maybe don't dog ear the pages. That hurts me emotionally. But do that if it means that you get back to it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You. It's not just somebody. It's not just people in Ephesus. This is you. This is me. This is us. This is we. You. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, did repeatedly, the way in which you lived, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We'll talk about all that. Among whom this world, under the influence of this power of the air, among whom we all once lived, not unwillingly, but passionately, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, not by deception, not by accident, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, just crazy, filthy rich in mercy, so much mercy because of the great the magnitude of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... Now, you don't, you don't have the equipment, none of us do, to understand verse 7. But if you became a monk and went and lived in a cave and all you did for the rest of your life was think about Ephesians 2, 7, you wouldn't get to the bottom of it. Listen to it. In the coming ages, God might show you the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, again... You can read about these people. There's this guy, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in London, and he preached on Romans for like a million years. I don't know. It was like a whole sermon or sermon series was on Romans like 12 to A, like the first six words, and he'd just go on and on and on about it because there's a lot to it, but, you know, help us out. There's a guy in the Middle Ages who preached for like, I don't know how many decades on the Song of Solomon. I don't know if you've ever read the Song of Solomon, but it gets a little earthy in uh, some of those parts. I don't know what he said and how he didn't say it with very rosy cheeks uh, for years and years and years. We could do the same with Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, but I want us to see in the time that we have what it does say to us about our enemies and about our allies. And he starts with enemies, so we'll start with enemies. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world. Then he talks about this prince of the power of the air. Then he talks about the passions of our flesh. And Christians have traditionally identified those three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's understand them. We don't want to be ignorant of their ways. We want to see it so that we can war against it. What does he mean by the course of this world? It does not mean a new world order that is just blatantly, openly anti-Christian. According to Revelation, something like that is coming at some point, I think. But right now and right then, there is a war 
against you through what we might call a social imaginary. Now, before you just check out because of the wording, what I mean is our collective American, Western, modern idea about who we are and where we're going. And you get that not by reading some dry book from a philosopher, maybe, but most of us, you don't get that that way. You get it through the movies that you see, the conversation that you have, the music that is just blasting all the time and gets down in there, and you don't even know how it happened. There's all kinds of funny jokes I've seen on different stuff about how much people know about the Kardashians. You've never seen anything. You've not actively tried to learn about them, but you know about them, and you can name all of them, and you know, like, who was with who and why, and oof, you know, and you followed the whole di- drama of it without meaning to. It just happens. I proudly can say that I only can name four, I think, Kardashians. I don't know how many there are, but you just sort of gets in there. How? There's a social imaginary. There's a, a way in which our culture is moving, and because you're part of the culture, you're moving with it. A very smart man named Charles Taylor wrote a very difficult-to-read book called A Secular Age, and in it, he talks about this social imaginary. It's the way ordinary people imagine their social surroundings. It's not often expressed in theoretical terms. You don't write it on a whiteboard as a series of propositions to either believe or disbelieve. It's just carried through the images, the stories, the legends, etc. Marvel movies. Why do Rachel's parents know about Thor in detail? Is it because they're just passionate about Norse mythology? No, it just gets in there. What else are you going to do on Friday? Like you can't get away from the billions and billions that are pushing through the media what we might call imaginative learning. And we've kind of been conditioned to think that the only real learning that you do is the kind of dry learning you get from a book from a class, from a lecture, from a TED Talk. But no, it's happening all the time. And most of the real learning that we're supposed to be doing all the time is taught to us through stories. We've got all of these texts from Paul in the New Testament, but we've got four, four stories about the life of Jesus. It's got teaching in it, but it's told as a story. Why? Wendell Berry is a novelist, and he says... Is imagination merely a talent, such as good singing voice or the ability to make things up, to think things up, get ideas? Or is it, like science, a way of knowing things that can be known in no other way? We've got much reason to think that it is a way of knowing things not otherwise knowable. As the word imagination itself suggests, it's the power to make us see. Imagination, imagination, image generation. The way to make us see, and to see, moreover, things without which would be unseeable. And one of its aspects is the power by which we sympathize. By its means we may see what it was to be Odysseus or Penelope, David or Ruth. What it is to be one's neighbor or one's enemy. By it we may see ourselves as others see us. It's also the power by which we see the place, the predicament, or the story we're in. This is happening all the time. Now, I went to a seminary. In our tradition, a seminary is like a master's degree that you do after college. And you go in order to get training in some of the historic sort of theology and practice of the faith. So you're ready to go out and actually learn how to be a pastor. 
And one of my professors was this older man, and I went to a seminary that had really great professors, and this was a guy I really liked. He was very orthodox, we might say. He knew the scriptures well, and he spoke them very passionately. And he talked about how one of the most dangerous things he ever saw was a movie called Same Time Next Year with a guy named Alan Alda and a lady named Ellen Burstyn. Now, I know who Alan Alda is, mostly just because of, I don't know, just different stuff he's been in as he's like the old man or the dad or the dad of the dad. But when this movie came out way back when, he was like the love interest or the, the protagonist. And then Ellen Burstyn, maybe you know who that is, was the other love interest. And this professor said this movie was one of the most dangerous things he saw, not because of what it contained in, like, gratuitousness. It's a PG movie. I don't think there's any nudity in it. But the story of the movie is that these two people met and had an affair. And instead of leaving their families or the whole affair blowing up in their faces, it was this very well-managed thing where they would just go and find each other at a hotel, same time, each year. And they would meet up, and the story was more about the ways that they had changed, interacted with other world, things in their world, and then they come back together to this beautiful mountain retreat. He said that was the most dangerous movie he ever saw because as he's watching it, he can feel his heart saying, what a great idea. Boy, adultery must not be that bad. If you've ever done it, I hope you would have a different testimony. But it worked because it made, through his imagination, a way for him to step into the shoes of an adulterer and say, well, it's pretty nice right here. So that when the movie's over and he goes back to being Dr. Coppinger, he's able to say, wait a minute, should I do that or not? Is the Bible right or not? And this argument from the movie didn't come in a series of propositions, it just came through sympathy with the people that you're watching. When you see a commercial, that commercial doesn't tell you how many calories are in that item. They just show you somebody taking one foot in the mouth and going, hmm. Eyes closed, sigh, roll over, hmm. Skittles, take a Skittle, put it in your mouth, hmm. I've never done that with a Skittle. I've never put a Skittle, I've never done a single Skittle, by the way, it's always a handful. But I've never put a handful in my mouth and gone, hmm. Because they're not that good. They're fine, but they're not that good. But when you see the commercial, all of a sudden, swoon. Why? Because they want you to associate swoon with Skittle. And they're doing it not by telling you that it will happen, but by showing it happening to somebody else. And you imaginatively accept that proposition. The world is having an effect. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The, the picture I'm pushing against these people and I've got shoulders kind of brushing against me on either side as I have multitudes walking one way and I'm trying to walk a different way. Do you feel that way? If not, I submit, it's because you're being carried along. You say, I don't know, there's not much of a current. You don't feel a current when you're not pushing against it. We do have the world, and the world is working against us, and that world is orchestrated. Ah, we're not going to be conspiracy theorists, but the devil is in Scripture. He is somebody who's pushing these things, who's trying to order these things, who the Scripture calls 
the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In John, three times he's called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians, he's called the God of this world who binds, uh, blinds the minds of unbelievers. He is an active, intelligent enemy who is working against us. And if you don't actually believe in him because you didn't just actually shudder as I talked about him, that's his defense. That's his camouflage. Those are his tiger's stripes that allows him to get close enough to swallow you whole. How does he do it? Well, Jesus said about this one. Now, he's talking to the Pharisees, and we'll get to that in a second. But he says, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He's a murderer, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what is he trying to do, and how does he do it? He's trying to murder. He's trying to destroy, and he goes about it through this deception. In the beginning, we have in Genesis the fall of Adam and Eve. That was not a good thing. It was a very, very bad thing. And it took place because the enemy came up to the woman and he said, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Look how masterful the temptation is. What he does is he questions God in the first place. I hope, and I have every reason to expect, that Adam and Eve hadn't even thought about questioning God to that point. Why would they? They've got this garden of delights and they're standing next to what I imagine was a very beautiful naked person that was theirs forever. They walk with God in the cool of the day. Why would they question him? And yet the enemy comes and he just adds the question. And then within the question, he begins to bait them with this thought that maybe God is holding out on them. Maybe he doesn't have their best interests in mind. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, just the one. And then the lie continues and the pressure mounts. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to die if you touch that. He knows if you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. Then she's baited. How? If you eat this, you'll be more. You'll be like God. You'll be as God. And then she starts looking at the fruit. Before, it wasn't even a thought. And now she's looking at it, and she's like, well, now that you say it, it really is pretty fruit. It's a delight for the eyes that it's, it looks like it's good for food, and it's helpful to gain knowledge. And so, hum, and so, fall. Separation from God. Everything you hate in the world. From that moment. Why? He deceived, and we fell. He lied. And we believed him over God. And in that passage that I read you where Jesus describes this one, he is saying that to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were, without knowing it, agents of the enemy to spread the enemy's lies. That means that when he's working in the world today, he's not going to show up Mephistopheles or whatever with his um, staff, his little pitchfork and his red horns and his kind of dapper suit. Curly mustache and the little beard? Oh, would you like? And then start his temptation? Of course not. But he works against you through false teaching. Lies. 
at Hope Church, I am petrified that I teach you something wrong. And so we set up myriads of defense against it. I did have to go to school for this. We have five other men at Hope Church who have degrees from that same group helping me, looking at what I'm thinking about and talking about. And poor David sits through, Josh too, I think. He's in and out. He's a little more all over the place. But Josh and David, they sit through like two of these every week. So the first time, maybe they're swept away in my eloquence. But by the second one, they're definitely listening for what's wrong. Are we teaching Bible? We have to. If we don't, though, we need to know about it. Know about it quick so we can repent, apologize, and go back. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. And yet, there are false teachers everywhere who stand on what seems to be Scripture, and they speak. Very quickly, because I'm already running out of time. One of the things I heard recently was a pastor who said from a pulpit that the mask is the mark of the beast. Now, the person who sent me that sermon was talking about other things that guy had said, and to be very fair to the person who sent it, they didn't believe what he said about the mark and the mask. But let's just hold it up as a really obvious one that we can see as a false teaching, and let's talk about how we would know it's a false teaching. How? Well, you go to the Scripture. He said that he thought that this mask was the mark of the beast. So you go to the Scripture and you say, mark of the beast, and it's really easy now. You can just go to Google. Mark of the beast, enter. And it goes, whoop, Revelation 13, 16 to 18. Oh, wow, he's only referencing three verses. Interesting. He's not talking about something that's seen on every page of Scripture. He's talking about one thing that's mentioned in just three verses in Revelation. Interesting. So you read Revelation, and it talks about these beasts, that in the final days there's going to be these Antichrists, these ones who will seem like they're good when really they're not. And all of these people are going to go after them and worship them as a counter to instead of worshiping the real God. And at this point in Revelation 13, 16, the beast causes all people, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and, it is his, and his number is 666. So, this teacher played on our natural dislike and discomfort in these things, which I do not like and I do not find comfortable. Plays on our fears of government overreach or our fears of some kind of cabal. And he says this, but when you actually go to the Scripture, when you push back on it a little bit, the Scripture says four things about the mark of the beast. One, that it's going to be the mark of worship for not God, but anti-God. Now, am I wearing this mask as a mark of my worship, not of Jehovah, but of someone else? No! Well, okay. Bloop. Two, that you need it to buy or sell. Can I tell you, with probably very low carbon emissions, I watch Amazon trucks go up and down our street with alarming frequency. They stop in front of my house with alarming frequency. No mass required. Bloop. It is a mark, meaning that this mark 
would show your connection to or allegiance to this beast. I don't know if you can see what's on my mask, but it says Hope Church. And I know that because every time I go anywhere, people look at it and read it. And then I remember, oh my gosh, I better act right because they're going to associate whatever I do right now with Hope Church. (laughs) It is a mark of my connection to Hope Church, not the beast. And it's not on my right hand or my forehead. So (laughs) I don't know. Show me how it's a mark. And can I say that the man who preached this sermon, he never actually said scripture to back himself up. He just sort of played on everyone's anxiety, fear, and discomfort, and then sort of as a dot, dot, dot mentioned that there's only one letter of difference between mask and mark. How interesting. And then he kept going. Now, he's using social imaginary, he's using fear, and he's using your anxiety and discomfort. He's not actually writing on the board, well, I think it's the mark because R is one letter away from S. Case solved. No, it's not not an argument. So, of course, that's a pathetic sort of attempt. But the further we get from truth, the more pathetic he will be and still succeed. You got to read your scripture, you got to see it. World, devil, flesh. We spent a lot of time in our sermon on hell talking about flesh, our desire of what God says we can't have, we would destroy us if we got, and yet we still want it. We walked, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, desiring what God said no to, and therefore are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God hates it. We want it. Why? Well, we have a flesh. We have a fallen nature. We keep thinking, just like our parents did, that maybe he's holding out on us. If that's the temptation, if that's what the enemy is using to pull us down, what is heaven using to pull us up? Let's talk about our allies. And if you want more on the flesh, go back to two weeks ago. What does it say are our allies? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He is talking about our allies, about what the the world and the flesh and the devil can't really war against if we'll actually look at it and see it. These things that are pulling us to heaven. One is God's love and his mercy. Now, if you know anything about the Scriptures and you know anything about God, He has always said that He loves you. He says it all the time. He says it loudly and constantly. He talks about His steadfast love. He talks about His unconditional love. And so you start to think, just like the sky, that it will always be there and it's not that important. But for a moment, go to the horrible place of thinking about what it would be like if... I wanted God's love and I didn't have it. How do you think about it? Think about times in your life where you've wanted someone and they haven't wanted you. Unrequited love. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about. I felt that deep for a long time. I wanted, but they did not. She, (laughs) let's be clear. She did not. 
unrequited love, and it hurts. It's thirst without water. And if God wouldn't look at you, if God didn't want you, what would you do? How could you get heaven's attention? How could you get heaven to say, you know who we need? You couldn't. Of course you couldn't. It hurts like fire. And then you find that in Scripture, God says that he has noticed you. That he does see you. You're trying to get somebody's attention. You're trying to get them to love you. He's saying, I do see you and I do love you. I do want you. How bad do I want you? I'll show you how bad I want you. I want you so bad that I'm going to send my son to die in order, glory of glories, to show mercy that's without measure so that when you turn towards me, not work your whole life in hope, but as soon as you turn towards me, I have built a bridge by which you become mine. Mine, mine forever, and me being yours forever. Wow. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. The the images are going to start to break across your brain and they're going to open you up to a wild glory and joy. That's what's going to pull you back. That's what's going to wake you up so that you stop being attracted by this sort of slumber and scent that comes from the enemy, the honey on the lips of the adulterous woman that's got her feet in death as she draws you away and down and further from the only place you can get life. Hell wants you, but in Jesus, if you believe, if you've trusted in Jesus, heaven already has you. He's going to bring you home. And he's going to bring you to a home in which... In the coming ages, he's going to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means he's going to put you in a place in heaven where he is going to force feed you the most incredible grace so that he can show you and all the world how limitless his grace is. I'm good and I'm going to show you how good I am by being good to you in a limitless way for a limitless amount of time. Oh my gosh, why doesn't that stir you? You don't have to like cheer and get excited, but I mean, in your heart, you need to be backflipping or at least want to be. That's what he's promised with heaven. And he tells us that that's what heaven will be so that we're drawn by. Psalm 1611, my life first, you hear it all the time. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is not austerity and starched collars and quiet and everybody hating it. No, fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, man. God has promised. He's offered. He's enticing. Do you feel it? Don't you want it? Oh, come to Christ and live If you are far from God and you're just thinking about whether or not this stuff could be true, great. I'm so glad we have the opportunity to speak. Please consider. And if you've got all kinds of arguments against Christianity, just admit that it would be nice if this were true. If you'll say that today, then I'm happy to talk about all the arguments after that. But if you are a believer, if you have committed that this is you 
This has found you. This has remade you. Well, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You are not wrestling against flesh and blood, against flesh and blood. You are wrestling against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You are warring against hell itself. And you're doing it through the love that you show to others. You're doing it through the praise that you show to God. And you're doing it through the temptations that you reject as you say no to hell and say yes to him. Won't you? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, please bring your people to a place of desire for you that's palpable. That it's what the enemy promises but can never deliver that we actually get to feel the pleasure and the joy of being yours forever. And that it starts now in some mystic way that you give us your Holy Spirit, that you meet us and as we pray to you and meet you in, in seeing your people and reading your word. Please reconnect your church and recollect your church so that we can worship you and praise you forever, Lord. Teach us to put on your whole armor so we can stand against the fiery darts of the enemy. We love you, sir, and we pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.